Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's returning guest. So when we had him on as a player, he was Sports Player of the Year, a two-time national champion, went on to play for our national team and pro, and now early on in his coaching career, he can already celebrate a national championship. Please welcome to the show, Adam Schreimer. Adam, thanks for doing this, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So like I mentioned, uh, we had you on as a player, and it seemed like you achieved everything you could. And I'm wondering uh, how early or how late in your career did you start thinking about coaching? Because, uh, man, you came out of the gate uh, pretty hot. Uh, I was transferring from a player to a coach right away, it seemed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, good question. I think um, what's, what's unique about me is I don't know what exactly it was about coaching that drew me to it from a, from a young age. But when I was a kid, um, even before I was kind of really playing you know, a lot of high performance organized sports, I kind of always knew in the back of my mind, um, I wanted, wanted to be a coach. And I'm not really sure exactly what it is that drew me to it, but from a young age, I, I was really fascinated with, I guess, just sports, sports in general as a kid. And then, and then coaching specifically too. So like even something like, you know, playing like sports video games or something, I was always just like fascinated by that, putting a team together and, you know, doing those like general manager modes and video games and stuff and wanting to, wanted to just kind of be a coach and kind of whatever capacity I could at that time. So, yeah, I think from a young age, I, I wanted to be a coach. And then when I was a, when I got to university, um, when I wasn't really sure exactly what, what I was going to do next, whether I was going to go play pro or whether I was going to kind of move on from, from sports, I remember having some conversations with, with Ben Josephson and he was, he was saying, well, whatever you do, like, or whatever happens after your career, like, I would love to, love to have you back here uh, on the staff and, and be an assistant coach. And then kind of once he said that, I kind of reminded myself that, you know, I really do want to at least try coaching and, and see if it uh, see if it's something I'd be interested to do, I guess in the long term. So uh, that's kind of the story. I, I, I liked it from a young age, and then as I got into university, as there were some more opportunities with Ben, I kind of wanted to pursue that. Do you remember as a player were there times uh, where you got really into like drill design or helping a coach give feedback that like this is the situation we want to create with this drill or even like game planning? Like, did you feel like not only a leadership role as, as playing the setter position, but also thinking as a coach's brain being like, Hey, if we want to set this up, we need to practice this situation. Yeah. I think I was always pretty interested in what kind of schemes and game plans and, and different tactics that we were doing. I thought uh, from an early age in university, once, you know, we got pretty like, high performance focused and we were like, doing, doing pretty detailed things with our game planning and our training. I was always really interested on, on what we're doing. And I was usually the one kind of going to Ben's, going to Ben's office either before or after practice, just kind of maybe asking for, asking some more questions or maybe giving some, some ideas. So yeah, I, I definitely think that was the case. It was always something that was very interesting to me other than, yeah, I mean, obviously there's a huge physical side of the, of the game that you're part of as an athlete, but I was really, really curious to kind of what, what we were doing and why we're doing it, I guess, as far as a game plan, scheme, tactics, standpoint. Nice. And uh, I know a lot of listeners and myself might think that uh, being an assistant at Trinity was the start, but uh, near the end of your playing career, were you working camps or coaching with the club team or just doing drop-ins? Like, when did you kind of feel like you kind of blurred the line between player and coach and you were doing both at a time? Yeah, good question. So I would say majority of my my uh, playing career um, at Trinity, I was helping out as an assistant coach or I think even one or two years at head coach for the Fraser Valley Volleyball Club. Um, so that's kind of a local club we have here in the, the Langley area that a lot of our, you know, Trinity athletes have, have played for a lot of our local guys come through the Valley club. Uh, so I was usually kind of helping out with either like maybe Ben Ball, he was head coach of the team. I helped out him a couple of times. Jordan Grant, Jordan Jaransky was the former uh, director of Fraser Volleyball, Fraser Volleyball club. I helped out him a couple of years. And then I think there was even one year where me and Blake Shearhorn actually head coached a, a younger team. Um, so 
early on, I tried to look for a lot of different opportunities for that I could just kind of help. And it was tough with my schedule, I guess, as the as a student athlete, especially with our Trinity team, we we ask a lot of our athletes, and there's not a lot of free time. But usually, like on a, on a Sunday afternoon or something, I try to just get out to a club practice and help out. So I thought that was kind of like I said, I knew I wanted to be a coach, and so I tried to look for some other opportunities. And I was I was grateful that the Fraser Volleyball Club was I guess willing to willing to have me, and even if it's a small capacity, which is often the case for kind of student athletes helping out with the club system. Uh, so when you started with Trinity, what was the vibe like? Because uh, help me with the timeline. Would you have played with some of the guys you were now coaching? Like, did you feel accepted right away that you could give feedback? Or maybe that was the value we were bringing to the team as assistant coach as you kind of had a, a formal relationship? Because it wasn't too long after you'd finished your pro career that you were back. So I'm wondering if some of the first years were guys you would have played with. Or excuse me, now some of the seniors were first years when you were playing. Yeah, when I, I only took one year off. Uh, and I played pro for one year. And then I came back. So there was, a, I guess, majority team I came back as an assistant coach um I was I was teammates with so obviously guys like Eric Lefke and Derek Gap and Jackson Howe, Jesse Elser and Jake Kerr Pierce like a lot of those guys I played with and was on floor with and, and honestly good, good friends with um and then you know as I got older um obviously those guys started to graduate and those guys I haven't played with and and this year is a little bit unique because there's one guy that I that I did play with and my fifth year was the first year for for Jesse Elser so it was kind of unique position that we were in this year where where I was now coaching him and we had we had been teammates so that was kind of a unique a unique situation where I don't know if that's ever really been the case and it's a lot of esports programs where former uh, former teammates were now kind of a player coach relationship but I think that's the, the cool part about Jesse is it I knew that it wouldn't really affect kind of our relationship and, and, and as unique as it could be is we both understood that whatever we're doing through our communication and and kind of just our player coach relationship, it, it's always designed to have the best interest of the team. So I think in, in some ways that really helped us this year is me and Jesse had an awesome, awesome relationship and, you know, me and Ben doing this thing in our first year together. I think what, what made us have a lot of success is relying on the relationships that we have and knowing that we can be honest and upfront and, and, and be trusting to each other. And that was awesome with Jesse is, you know, there's a lot of times as a, as a first year coach, you're, you're really kind of scratching your head being like, Oh, I don't know if we're doing this the right way or do we got to, we got to abandon ship on this plan or we got to stick with it. But I think having someone like Jesse was so huge because uh, I mean, we really value each other's opinions and we know that we trust each other and we're both willing to do whatever it takes to have the, for the best interest of the team. So um, that, that was, that was unique with Jesse this year. And then I think as when I started an assistant coach perspective, I think the relationships was another great key as well because I played with a lot of those guys and I was really close. And I think, when there's current former players that are not on the staff, I think that can offer a really unique opinion and perspective on what the guys are going through and what the guys are feeling. And then you can even have a really genuine and authentic conversation with them to understand where they're at because you have that friendship and you have a relationship there. So I think that was pretty valuable in my first kind of first kind of year or two as an assistant coaches. Well, you know, Eric Lefke and Derek F and those guys were, you know, really good friends of mine. And I could really have a you know authentic conversation with them to just kind of see where they're at. And from there I could, you know, choose to maybe share that information with Ben, who's the head coach at the time, and, and see if, you know, his thoughts on that, or if it was just kind of a, a conversation that wasn't really, you know, didn't have much weight to it. It didn't really matter for that point. So I think relationships are really good. And as an assistant coach who played with played with guys on the team, I think you can leverage that in the right way of understanding, that, is this something we got to talk about? Is this a big issue with the team? Or is that just something that, that, that a player just kind of wanted to get off the chest? So. I think relationships are really, really valuable. And I think that's one of the awesome parts of our program in the last number of years is we've had a lot of former players come back and be an assistant. 
I think the relationships they had with their former teammates and now guys they're coaching has made us to have, yeah, some really valuable kind of like player coach teaching moments. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious that first year, if you look back, what were some things that accelerated your learning? Because a guy like Benjo involved with the provincial team, it seems like always guest speaking at coaching clinics, always willing to share. But uh, I'm wondering when you're in his gym, because there's a guy who could say, hey, I know what I'm doing. Here's the, here's the binder. This is what we're doing versus like asking you for ideas and getting uh, sharing thoughts. So, I mean, you step into a coaching staff and you're working with a buddy in Ben Wall, but you also have another vet in Joel Jansen and then Benjo kind of leading the charge. So uh, what was the, the coach's office kind of like that accelerated your learning that really switched you on to coaching further? Yeah, I thought what, what Ben did an amazing job in my, my early years as assistant coach was he gave me a lot of like a lot of responsibility. And one thing he did a great job of is we'd be we'd be in a team setting. He would kind of introduce kind of a concept or a theme or some sort of system or skill or whatever it may be that we were going to do. He'd be the one to introduce it and say kind of why we're doing it. And then we'd all branch off to do something and we'd all have our own individual I guess, category or section or, that we would go teach it. So let's say we would talk about, you know, I don't know, Middle middle setter relationships and just talking about our speed, our tempos, and our gaps with setter minutes. And he would you know break it down, show me to show a couple of clips, explain this is what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then he would say, all right, now Adam, you go teach it or you go coach it. So I think got from a from a perspective of Ben introduced it, this is what we're doing. And then now it was on me to just go and kind of you know run that board or run that section of practice and and just and just go and teach it. So I thought that was great. It gave me a lot of responsibility. Um, especially as a young coach too, sometimes it's easy to just kind of get lost, not lost in the shuffle, but I think offer value in different ways. And maybe it's just something as simple as, you know, entering some serves or in some down balls or shaking balls. Like sometimes that can be the role for a new young assistant coach. But for our case with, with Ben, that, that wasn't, that wasn't the kind of the situation we were in. He gave us a lot of responsibility and he did a really nice job of kind of setting the framework to it. So we knew kind of what structure in the, in the, in the I guess the, the shell of what we were doing. And so we could kind of teach within that system. Yeah, that, that's so cool to hear. And uh, hopefully some of our listeners remember just prior to COVID there, there was a Can-Am tournament where you guys came to the GTA and you played against uh, Long Beach, UCLA. I, I think Lewis was here, Ohio State. Uh, anyways, the, the point I'm going to make is Benjo was away with our women's team because Tom Black was coaching NCAA. So what was that moment like for you and Ben Ball to kind of be thrown in the deep end a little bit, being like, coach isn't here. He's given us the reins. Now we get to be the voice and the timeout and everything else that goes with that. Were, were you nervous at first uh, or just, was that you just comfortable? and excited for that opportunity yeah it's probably a bit of both i think especially then because that was my first year system coaching and we were all i think that was probably the first tournament i don't know maybe in ben's career where he wasn't there so i think that was a really big deal because he had done an amazing job of you know building this program up to a great spot and it was such a such an amazing tournament such a key event like that was the first time in a long long time where our program we got to play against you know some of those top you know ncaa ncaa schools and it was it was a really cool event. So yeah, definitely definitely nervous. But I think the the cool part was is it wasn't like we were you know yeah we weren't trying to do anything like new or special or unique. I think we were just kind of we all had our own special, specific I guess kind of uh, categories that we were going to be coaching at, and I think it just stayed the same. And I guess it was more just like Ben kind of leading leading the charge of Ben Ball leading the charge that weekend on kind of I guess everything we're doing as a whole, but. I think nothing really changed. We all have our responsibilities in game who we're trying to talk to. And I don't think too much of that changed, but obviously with the stakes of, you know, filling in for Ben, that could be really nerve wracking and stuff. But I think uh, that tournament was, that tournament was fun just because of the, the event it was and the opportunity to play other great teams that we didn't really, that we don't really have too often. And 
to fast forward one more step uh, with Ben uh, leaving the Trinity program and taking on our national team job, uh, you and Ben Ball take over the position. Uh, I find this a fascinating step because I, in my opinion, as an outsider, Trinity probably has some pillars that you guys want to continue in a culture that like as graduates, you probably value. But at the same time, you can't be Benjo. Like you have different strengths that you bring to the table and you have stuff that he can't do. So were you tempted as switching from like the assistant role to sharing the head role with Ben Ball that like we, we can't just copycat. We have to have our own identity or, or what were some things that you talked about, about like, let's keep this, but like, let's try things our way as well. Yeah, I think that's great. And that was something that I think as you stepped into it, and especially head coaching for the first time, you're nervous that you're just going to try and be like, you know, your mentor. You're nervous that you're just going to try and copy what Ben did. I thought one thing we were really proud of is that we felt like we were being really genuine and authentic to ourselves. And that we were trying to, we were trying to just coach the team the best that we could. And obviously it's unique because, you know, I've been a part of Trinity's program for, for, for nine years. Five of them I played for Ben. Three of them um, I was assistant for Ben, and then obviously there was this past year here. So it's very obvious, but a lot of my volleyball knowledge and my experience is influenced by Ben. Like, the last eight eight of the last nine years have been with him at the church. So it's no secret and it's no surprise that you know I, I'm, I'm incredibly influenced by him. But obviously there was there were some things that we wanted we wanted to try and we wanted to just be kind of authentic to ourselves. And I think one of the things Ben is amazing at is he is such a great innovator of the game and he's great at just watching watching you know pro volleyball and just seeing what athletes are doing and seeing how teams are scoring points and just seeing how you know different systems and styles that are being affected and he can almost immediately just find some science that connects it to key learning points and then find a way to train it effectively so i think that's what's really cool is he can watch you know a really cool um, a really cool play overseas. Like all of a sudden, you know, you're watching him get that, but he's just doing the coolest thing you've ever seen. It's probably really hard to train, but he can all, all automatically connect to some really cool learning science and find a training method that is, you know, I guess easy to easy to train and then bring that to our team. So I think that was one thing, one area that we were going to try to slow down a bit. Is this year, we just wanted to try and find a team that could be, you know, really top serving team and just be stable and high ball. And then, because those are some of the strengths of our team is like our, our serving and our highball blocking, and then I guess kind of learn, learn on the fly exactly what it is that being head coach is all about, and not trying to like always be super creative and innovative. So I think that was kind of more the the, the mindset going in this year is how can we create a really clean team that plays to our strengths as opposed to being I guess very quick with the next trends in volleyball. And obviously that's something that we're going to try and attack this summer. Is where is the game going? How is it changing? I think that's always kind of the priority of the summer. I think that's the best part about. Of our, our schedule right now is we have the summers off and then we get to go watch BNL, we get to watch World Championships, we get to watch the qualifiers all summer and we get to see the best in the world doing it. So I think that would be the priority of the summer is what, what are the best players in the world doing? How can we find a way to teach it and make sense to our framework and our style and our and our personnel? And then and then just learn from that. So I I would say that's an area where we were just trying to be be, be genuine and authentic to ourselves is more so just let's figure out what our strengths are and how can we play to that and just play clean volleyball at the same time. I love hearing how you're describing this and I'm wondering if you have any hacks that you could give to a new coach or even an experienced coach of, of how to apply this because 
you're right. We can go watch VNL uh, for club coaches. You can go watch U Sports. Uh, you can get on the internet and watch Modena play. But I don't think the trick is watching cool stuff happen. I think the trick is how does it make sense for my gym and how am I going to teach it? So uh, how do you find a, a way to boil it down, right? Like, so you you get switched on by this cool play, but then you're kind of like, you know what? We don't have the personnel to do this or this doesn't make sense at our level. Like, how do you uh, filter through something that's like, wow, that's really awesome versus like, that's really awesome. I'm going to teach it this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the big thing that we try to look at is just comparisons and personnel. And I think body types and body profiles. I think, I think for example, that there could be, I think, let's say from like a middle, a middle blocking position, there are some middle blockers in the world that are able to, able to just be like in a really high hands read and still be able to close, you know, low seam um, through what we would deem to be not a very athletic position. But because of their length and because of their size, they're able to close, um, I think, relatively quickly. But if you don't have a six eleven guy with a you know a seven foot two wingspan, all of a sudden you're you got you know a number of inches that you you don't actually have that advantage to. So I think a big thing that we try to do is how can we? I guess that'd be from a blocking perspective. Is I think personnel is huge. Is how can we uh, try and be learning from what the best are doing in a in a profile type that is similar um, similar personnel to maybe maybe that we're looking at as well. And I think another thing to not be get caught in is it's very easy when you're watching high level volleyball to just notice the outlier. Um, like what is the one really cool, unique play that happened? And it happened once a set, but it's so rare and random that that's what we remember is just because it's a one, we don't know it. So it, it, it caught our eye and for that reason, we remember it. So I think um, that that's a big thing is like, what, what, what is actually happening? Where are the teams actually scoring the points? And I think scoring the points is the big thing. Is everything we do and we watch and we we evaluate? It has to be designed to to getting to earning more points. I think it's, it's obvious points win games, so you gotta you gotta try and earn more points. And I think if you're not if you're just getting caught in the weeds about something that really doesn't actually matter to affect to to score points, then they're not actually really helping. Like setter footwork is a good example. It's pretty easy to just get caught really deep in the weeds and just get way too distracted with setter footwork. But at the end of the day, you don't set the ball with your feet; you set the ball with your hands. And if you can just find a way to just get your hands in a better spot, to set more, to set you know, set a little quicker, set a little higher, set a bit more accurate, well then you're in a better spot because you created your spike in a better position, and the spiker is going to earn you know majority of your points in, in a in a in a set. So I think personnel is a big thing. Don't get caught up with the outlier, and just make sure the global theme of how is this actually helping us earn more points is really is really important. So I think that's where I think one of the one of the matches we always talk about is what what gets measured improves. So if you're actually trying to watch something, then go clearly, go clearly, you know, watch something that you can measure. But let's say you're just going to go on doing all metrics and you're just going to watch you know, all of, you know, Brazil's highball spikes and you're just going to measure, right? How are they actually scoring all their highballs? Is it through blockouts? Is it through baseline skips? Is it through a sideline skip? Is it through, you know, a rolling in the pod or is it through a line? Whatever it may be, I think it's really clear to, to have a clear, I guess, a clear objective and something that you can measure effectively that is designed to score in points. This is so cool. Uh, we're going to nerd out on some coaching here. I hope nobody gets bored if you're not a volleyball coach. But uh, how did you get anchored to that philosophy? Because I have so many uh, great discussions, sometimes arguments with other coaches about uh, errors in volleyball. And I think so many people get attracted to errors. And that's something that maybe as the game uh, advances, we get caught up on. Where maybe in 14U, the team who makes the more, more errors loses. But at the higher level, you, like you said, you have to earn points. So therefore, you have to assume a little bit of risk. So how have you kind of welcomed that into your philosophy where, 
where, for example, you guys are a really tough serving team. Do you ever go into a timeout and be like, guys, we're missing too many serves versus like, this is our identity. This is what we're going to do. Like, how have you kind of lived on that spectrum of like, we need to earn points, but we're going to make errors because uh, I think errors are where the the inexperienced volleyball fan, like the volleyball parent, their attention goes to first being like, oh, we're giving points away, not understanding the risk associated with scoring points, right? Mm-hmm. I think the, the big thing with errors is understanding whether it's what we call physical error or a mental error. I think from a serving perspective, if you would miss your toss and it's really low in front, really low in front of you, for say, for example, let's say, and you choose to just blast that ball in the bottom of the net, and then the coach comes up to you and talks to you afterwards and say, oh, I missed my toss. Well, that's not an excuse. Like like I said, right? remember with setting, you don't set the ball with your feet, you set the ball with your hands. You don't serve the ball with your toss, you serve the ball with your hand. I think at our level, you know, regardless of the toss, you can always find a way to put that ball in the court. So in our, in our, in our opinion, that's a mental error. You miss your toss, but that's still a good enough excuse for you to miss your serve. Well, then that's a mental error. In our level, you, any player is good enough, no matter the circumstance, no matter the toss, that they can always put that ball in the court. So I think understanding the difference between physical and mental errors, okay. And let's say, for example, I don't know, in our, in our team this year, Henry Rempel. You know, he's regularly hitting the spencer, you know, one one fifteen kilometers and everything. He's really blasting that, that ball. And if he goes up board, it's good toss, good slow to fast. He's hitting that ball at extension. And, you know, he hits that ball pure with his hand and he just misses the sideline there. We can live with that because everything was good. He had the right mindset. It was a go toss. It was a good situation. And he tried to blast it. He just happened to miss execute a little bit. Those are the errors that we can live with. So I think having a clear understanding of understanding a clear understanding of knowing what is a physical error and a mental error. And I think you got to probably get to break that down into all skills. Same thing could go with high ball spiking, right? Like if it's a really tight set and you didn't put your feet there, but you blast that ball into the block and get, and get hammered. Well, then that's a mental error because in our mind, there's no, especially for high ball. And this is one thing I'm teaching with my club, my club guys a lot right now is in high ball. In honestly, all spiking situations, we believe there is not a bad, there's not, there's no such thing as a bad set. There was obviously some sets that are better than others and some that you have higher likelihood to kill. But if you have good feet and you start in a good, you know, in a, in a, an effective spot to be able to get your feet to the ball, you have good eyes to recognize that that set is not where you in an ideal spot. If you have good eyes and good feet, you can always get your feet to the ball and hit that ball in extension and acceleration and hit that ball pure with your hand. So based off your eyes and your feet, you can always make a good, you can always make a, um, a hittable, you can always make a ball hittable, in my opinion. So I think that's where you got to understand if it's a mental error or a physical error. If you don't get your feet to the ball, that's fine. It may happen. You might have had a bad read on it. Or you had poor eyes. That's okay, too. But what that can't result is in there being an error because of a because of a poor a poor choice in your head. And that goes back to mental or physical error. Do you uh, remember what switched for you in terms of uh, what the action leads to the like the skill performance or the point? Like uh, you mentioned setter footwork there, where I imagine if we get uh, you, Ben Ball, Brock Davidock, a whole bunch of people in a room, we could probably nerd out for hours about stepping with our, our right left close or a left right close or how to get off the net. Like I think we would agree footwork is important, but as you mentioned, your hand set the ball. So uh, how have you, the coach, have kind of discovered this, this athlete autonomy or they can find a creative way to do it versus like there's like a model to do something like I'm sure in your gym, there are some must haves. Like you just mentioned, like slow to fast, keep the ball in front of you, like a go toss. Like there's probably chunks you have, but it doesn't sound like you have like a robotic model for everybody. And I'm just wondering as a coach, uh, how have you developed like that belief or philosophy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would think one one of the things we want is based off good or perfect pass scenarios. Like I think that's where we want to be pretty 
I think in the last number of years, we haven't really changed what we want. Like we want to be, you know, right, left, parallel feet, you know, a little bit of movement, kind of forward to position four. But I think as far as the other side of it, and I guess medium bad pass situation, same thing. A lot of it depends on depends on the personnel. So I think for, um, you know, what could be, I guess the difference between like a big setter and a little setter. So let's say it's a flatter, a flatter pass that is a bit, you know, let's say you're around three meters and, you know, we have a big setter and somewhere in the series. What a six-foot setter, setter or, or German setter? He's a big setter. We want to make sure that he's playing the ball with a big setter, always intercepting the ball at the highest point. But let's say in previous years, someone like, who would be a bit smaller, like Devin Platt, he was uh, one of the setters before me. He's probably about 6'2", 6'3", maybe. In our, in our terms, we would call him to be a little setter. So like someone like him, he could play the ball a lot lower to the ground and not have to think about intercepting the ball at the highest point because he can take the ball through his size at a much lower level. So I think it kind of goes back to what I what I said about personnel. It's I think based off pass quality and kind of your style as a setter, I think that there's a number of different tools to help you get the ball into an effective spot that you can create a hittable ball, a hittable ball. At a, a, a ball. And uh, I imagine... So video and stuff like that would be so fun to just go to do video and stuff but yeah, i hope that kind of makes sense to try to describe it yeah so you guys have like a standard or what you think is like uh like optimal but you wouldn't put somebody in a box so i'm just wondering uh when do they reach a point where they're like allowed creative freedom so we talk about like this ideal footwork on a good pass but maybe uh tia's fakes a two ball and side sets it like when do you allow that kind of creative freedom where he can kind of do something a little different that maybe we haven't rehearsed as much right yeah great question i think that relies on the difference between your technique and your touch so with your technique, you got to build up a spot. You got to build your technique to a to a level that is um, that is consistent and repeatable. That any day you can roll out of bed and you can create a hittable go left, go right, pick, cat ball, whatever it may be. You always got to be comfortable with your technique that you can you can you can do something repeatable over time, over time, over time. Like we want our we need our setters to be at not at least ninety five percent hittable. Something may happen 5% of the time you might, you might miss the ball. But I think that's the difference between knowing your, your technique and your touch. Where Matias, he's just so comfortable with the volleyball. His technique is great because of his, you know, his, his long volleyball background and his ability to play so many different positions that he can go fake a, fake a spike and all of a sudden he's twisting. But he's got such comfortable, he's so comfortable with his touch that he knows based off a different kind of, I guess, position on his, on his, on his head, whether he's a bit low in front or behind or side to side, that he knows he can deliver a hittable ball based off that situation. So I think you got to be, uh, your, your techniques got to be um, in a good enough spot that you can consistently deliver a hittable ball. And then your touch has got to be in a high enough, high enough level where it allows you to be creative without losing the ability to make a hittable ball to give your spike in a good situation. No. But I think that freedom at the net is exactly what we want our setters to be. At the end of the day, they're playmakers. When you be a playmaker, you got to be a creative. And you could be a, you could be, um, you can be creative through being very tricky or just be incredibly deceptive where you're looking the exact same in right, left, parallel feet, perfect pass always. And whether or not you're setting left, middle, right pipe, we would deposit when the ball is in your hand, it would look exactly the same. So I think there's a lot of different ways you can be creative, whether that's through consistency or using your athleticism to be a bit tricky and be kind of a, I guess, a more, uh, more entertaining playmaker. Definitely, definitely. And one thing about Nationals I wanted to pick your brain on was uh, with the live stream, we were also lucky to be able to watch every match. And I thought the, the camera angles and everything was awesome. But uh, 
I, I didn't get to watch you guys throughout the year as much as I wanted to, but watching your games at Nationals, one thing that stood out is it'd be 5-5 five, five and Brody would go back to serve and all of a sudden it's 9-5. Or you'd bring in a serving sub and it'd be 20-20 and all of a sudden it's 24-20 and Elsa ripped seven aces in the final and like uh, it just goes on and on. Tia says a serve. Like I can't even name all the guys I was so impressed with their serves. Even uh, your one middle has a wicked float serve. So I'm curious with your serving philosophy, uh, how did you stay committed? Because I'm sure there was times to maybe abandon ship earlier in the season being like, guys, we're taking too much risk or maybe the unknown that every coach faces being like, this is going to pay off. This is going to pay off. So for you guys, it looked like it finally clicked at nationals but uh, i'm curious in preseason, in first semester second semester was there any time for you guys to be like we can't be this aggressive or was that going to be your identity from day one yeah no that's that's a great point and that's something i think that's what every coach and probably every volleyball team in the world is struggling with is just serving right like how many points are you willing to give up with serving and i think for what was unique us with us this year is we were in a lot of spots this year where we were choosing to serve really aggressive and we were getting a lot of results but the moment we didn't get the result, we were bad because our block D wasn't a good enough spot and our transition offense wasn't a good enough spot. So really what that showed us is we were bad at volleyball. We were just good at serving. And then the moment our serving fell away, well, then we were a really bad team because we couldn't get one stop and then teams were just hitting crazy efficient on us and then our transition offense was pretty crappy as well. So I think if you're going to train serving really aggressive, that's fine. You can live by it. It's important with serving that you can't die by it. And I think that was a cool spot with us this year is we, we recognize that, you know, serving is our strength. Like I talked about playing to your strengths, playing your personnel. Like you said, all of a sudden Brody, Matias, Henry, uh, Jesse, you know, Jackson, Peniel, Float, Ansem coming off the bench. Like at any point this, this year, someone could catch a run. And that's why we wanted to choose to still be really aggressive. Even on the times of, uh, of where we would have maybe high error rates and we're in 60, 70%, which is, which is quite low. Uh, we wanted to still be aggressive because we felt like at any point someone could kind of take the game away. The important part is you got to make sure that if you're going to be a really good serving team, you got to combine that with really good high ball block defense. Because the, the idea of serving is to get them off the net. We don't want to chase aces. We want to chase knockouts. Uh, we, we find when we chase aces is that we, we tend to overserve. We tend to overcook our servers and overswing. And what we know is the better teams you play and the longer the year goes on good teams don't get it faced. they find ways to just dig it and just play defense on top serves and i thought when we played alberta at the end of the year that or the campus final that was a really good example of that there was a lot of times where we were cooking really 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 tough serves but what you do and this is exactly what international volleyball is right now is everyone passes the three four meters and you just kind of play secondary system where you play high ball and i think that's what that's what has to be understood is you're going to serve tough you got to make sure that your block defense is in a really good spot that you can still earn points through that phase. And then more and more important, the transition phase as well. So the moment you get that slowdown, the moment you get, the moment you get that, that, that touch or that good dig quality, then your transition's got to be a good spot so you can protect the server at the line. So I think that, that's the biggest thing with our serving is it's got to be, it's got to be paired with, with block defense and transition. And that was the problem with us probably in the first semester of this year is that we, we, we served up, but when we didn't get an ace, or we didn't get um, kind of a, a knockout. It uh, or when we got a knockout and they they had full score on us, we we just weren't actually good at volleyball. So I think you got to make sure that your block team trans is in a good spot. And then when the ace happens, to take it. But in our opinion, aces aren't good serves that the bad pass because all good passers don't get aced, and especially in the international level right now too. Like it, any passer who gets beat will say that it wasn't a good serve that they missed something with their touch, the platform, or their eyes. So. I think that's our that's our that's our mindset with serving. I think being aggressive is 
being aggressive is, is, is kind of the, the key there, uh, especially, but it's dependent on personnel too. Like the previous years, we weren't as aggressive because we didn't have four guys that can go back there and consistently hit bombs. Like, like Jesse and Brody and Pius and Hank and those guys. So like I said, it's about personnel. I love your philosophy about aces and I'm sure a lot of coaches are switching on, but we've all coached athletes who like love a good ace. Like it leads to a good celly, like it's emotional, like it's a big athletic play. So when you mentioned like get the setter off the net or we can get slowdowns, like was that pretty self-evident in your gym and guys bought in or did this take uh, a little negotiating saying like, I don't want you to hit your hundred percent surf here, like hit your 85% and let's get the setter off the net. Yeah. I think with, with the physicality of, of some of the service we have and the players we have, I think it's that constant reminder of um, making them just pass your best serve over and over and over again. And at some point, you know, a, pa- a pass will keep break. And I think that's kind of, we often always have to have that reminder quite in practice and in training. Just, you know, don't chase aces, just continually hit your best serve and you can, and you can get in the court at, you know, 80, 85%. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's, it's tough with serve, especially when you want to be aggressive, you want to be point scorer, but um, it takes takes a constant reminder to, especially an elite server who wants to impact the game, especially a hot spiker too, to yeah, to just know that you just got to have that that freedom to continue to hit your best serve and make that passer pass you over and over and over again. No, there's been a lot of great studies on serving in the past few years. And anyone who listens to Coach Your Brains Out, uh, Andrea Becker's been on there. Uh, she's an assistant with the U.S. national team in UCLA. But w- one thing she wanted to get away from is some weird volleyball traditions we have where maybe I go back and I miss my serve and you're the next server. So now, Adam, you can't miss your serve because that would mean we missed two in a row. Like, did you guys have any superstition or team rules? Or like if Brody misses, no problem. Next guy going back, he's going to hit his best serve. Yeah, I think that's some stuff that we did a pretty good job with our mindset is just making sure that you know each serve is very independent of itself and you know has, has its own rally, it's its own serve, its own point. Um, I think it's really understood. It's really important to understand. Like I said, mental errors. Like there could be a lot of mental errors with serve, and part of it is maybe if it's not your day from the from the service line, or maybe your shoulders a bit more sore, or you're fatigued later on in the game, and if you're still trying to blast in those situations, uh, then I think then I think that is, that is a mental error. So I think understanding the, the use of variations is something that is very, very good with, with serving. So whether you're doing like a more of a role to, you know, a spot where they don't have a lot of, a lot of protection because there's no middle or opposites in that zone to help, or um, maybe you're doing a spin to float on a toss that you miss a bit in front of you or, or yeah, whatever kind of variation serve like that is good. So I think, I think it's not necessarily those, you know, those things you hear probably from a young age. It's like, you know, we don't miss two in a row. We don't miss after a timeout. We don't miss some first serve in the game, all that kind of random stuff, you know, like I don't think that, I think that matters. What matters is who's going to be a blast server. Who's going to be your tactical variation server. And I think that's some stuff we tried to do a pretty good job of this year and outlining a lot of our game plan stuff, especially for our float servers. We only really had one near the end end there. It's like what rotation are we point scoring through our block defense and what point scoring are we, you know, what, or what rotation are we serving through? Are we earning points to kind of our, our aggressive serve, aggressive serve strategy? So I think, like I said, serving is a really, really big mental game. As long as there's a lot of thought and attention behind the serve you're trying to hit, then I think that's the best thing. And that even goes to spin servers. Like we want guys to hit their best serve and their best zone that they've trained over and over and over again. So I think blindly just going to hit the serve as hard as you can into the court isn't something we, we did a lot because we always wanted to make sure that at least we had some sort of target whether that's like the two left sides that are passing beside each other, that's always a good, a good zone to target anytime you can get the ball away from the libero or, you know, uh, internal seams to make sure that two players always have that decision to go to it. 
or the two left sides beside each other with the middle and front in a rotation like that. So that could be like a row, a row five or a row four where the middle stacked in that area and the two left sides are beside each other. I think those type of serves and understanding the bottom tension of what type of, what type of serve and why you're trying to hit it is, is the most important thing and not those kind of younger, I guess, serving mindset things that you, you can experience it at the, when you grow up and growing up playing volleyball. But I do love that mindset from a, from a youth volleyball age is we want to get better at volleyball by playing volleyball. And at youth volleyball, when it's just teams alternating misses and serves and rolling the ball into the net, then we're not actually getting better at volleyball. I think serving is something that we got to probably train a lot more independently through probably, you know, individual training and serving, you know, before or after practice and after reps. But when a team is there playing volleyball, especially with how little time, you know, our club athletes get from a young age, is we might only get four to six hours a week in 14U, 15U, 16U volleyball. Like that's not a lot of time. Like compared to how much we train with our Trinity guys, is we can do an hour rep session every morning and then we can have, you know, two and a half practice at night. So we're getting triple the amount of reps as any kid we get. So I think, I think what's important for younger kids and young coaches who are involved in club is trying to find extra times, maybe before or after practice and some open reps that you can just train serving. And then obviously it's important as you get older to make sure you can do it in a game environment to understand the pressure of what, what it is to, to serve a good ball. Um, but I think what's, what's, what's tough is with that is that there is a lot of missed service in youth volleyball, especially we're noticing that a lot in the recruiting. Um, and no one's actually playing volleyball. And I know Volleyball Canada has done some good stuff with introducing like the, the triple ball and stuff that has entered to actually rallies can happen. But uh, it's easy to just use the excuse um, of serving top to miss serves. Like at the end of the day, every point is worth the same and the value of the point doesn't change. And that's just a cop out in our, in our opinion is while well, we're serving top and that's what we miss. It's like, I think there can always be a bit more thought and attention and ownership to your serve. Now, we've been lucky over the years on the show to get a lot of Trinity guys. And one thing that stood out to me uh, was Pierce explaining just the love of volleyball guys have and how lucky they feel to be able to play where he's like, if you were to have a spectrum of like super serious, angry, and then on the other side, kind of like silly laissez faire, he's like, we're probably in the middle, but maybe like one or two ticks towards like the silly fun side. So uh, I'm curious, is that something that you and Ben tried to instill with this year's squad? Like that's something you guys enjoyed. And, and if so, how do you have that gym where, yeah, it's fun and guys are going to smile, but we also have work to do and we're going to be serious. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And I think that's one thing that's been unique about our, or training environment often when you know an outsider comes in to watch they they perceive it to be not focused and they perceive it to be um yeah i think just no no intensity and not focused but in our mind i think that was a good training level for us and that's always interesting because sometimes someone who has no affiliation to the team but maybe a volleyball background is quite surprised when they come into our gym um i think the big thing with that is understanding um Silly and goofy can be great, but silly cannot turn into sloppy. And I think there's that fine line. We can be having fun and being a little goofy when we play, but the moment we're sloppy with our skills and our systems and our techniques and maybe our mindset, well, then it's probably gone too far. So, and it's a fine line. So kind of understanding is we can have fun and play volleyball and get better and be competitive all at the same time. I think there's no turning it on and off being like, okay, now we're going to focus. Now we're going to go. I think it's important that we make sure that we have a really fun environment for all of our athletes to, to learn and get better. Cause I think athletes are going to be, um, athletes are going to be more likely to improve if they feel like they're having fun as opposed to the pressure that they need to, you know, dial in on the skill and really execute something at a high level. So 
I think it's it's a tough balance, and it's, sometimes it's really easy to get distracted in, I guess, the goofy, funny, you know, I guess, personality we have on the team. And that's the hard part of having really great relationships with the guys on the team and through a relationship-based coaching style that we really like to, to model our our teams off of and our, and, our, and our coaching and our leadership off of. It's It can be hard to kind of understand, I guess, to kind of maybe be be clear when when we need to be a bit more more focused and entitled. So, and it, it's tough because it's not coming from, it's good because it's not coming from a bad spot. Like no one's being goofy because they, they don't care. It's because they're having a genuine great time with their friends. And that's awesome. So we want to still encourage that. But at the same time, we have standards and we have expectations that, that we need to hit. I love how you bring up the the relationship-based coaching because I think that's a great way to deliver the message. And, and you mentioned that's a strength of you and Ben. But uh, another thing just from being an outsider kind of admires the Trinity program is just uh, anchoring to stories or kind of getting guys approached that. Like when Eric Leppi was on the show, he mentioned like the 20-mile march and how he really anchored to that. I appreciate that. So is that something you guys have chosen to continue? And was there any like story or anecdote you would like to tell to kind of get the guys switched on? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one. So. Um, yeah, that's when, and that's one thing I give Benjo just so much credit to. Is he always talked about athletes learn the best, or I guess humans in general, in, in three to five word phrases and just quick little stories and mantras and, and that type of stuff. So I thought one thing that we really like this year, and we, we use this this mantra a lot when we go into uh, an enemy territory, and it's called um, it's called burn the ships. And the story of it is, I don't know, I don't know the details, but many years ago there was. Um, there was an invasion of, of land in a colony and uh, a group sailed over. And when they got there, their leader, he, he burned the boat. He burned the ship because at that point they were going to invade that land and they were going to conquer that land. And I, I, someone would have to remind me the exact details of, of what story it's from. But um, when he got there, he wanted his whole team to know that there's no going back. Like they didn't want that option there that they could, you know, just hop on their ship and just go back home. Like that wasn't the case. As we go there, we're all in and we got to stay tough through it, good or bad. And win or lose, we're doing it together. And that was kind of the mindset. And that's often our our, our, our strategy and the mantra we use when we went into enemy territory. So that's what we felt. And we we, we kind of talked about burn the ships when we were in Alberta for the Canada's final and then McMaster for the national semis. Hey, there's 17 of us and there's two, 3,000 of them. Like, there's no going back. It's just us. It's just together. We win or lose, we got to do this thing together. The moment we step on the court, like the ships burn. And I thought that was a really cool way of just bonding, bonding together with the team and knowing like, man, all we have is us and we're not going to go back and we're win or lose. We're doing this thing together. So I thought that was a fun one that the guys really, the guys really bonded over this year. In the previous years, we, we have used that one, that one as well. It's, just, it's a cool way of just doing it. We got to stay tough together, especially in the tough environment on the road like we did in Alberta and like we did in the past. Definitely. Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, uh, I think this year, well, it gets tested every year, but this year there there were some moments, right? Like uh, Sask has a, has a great regular season. You play them tough. Uh, it seems like Alberta was all world in the Canada West and just playing really tough. So when, when you guys get tested that way, because I think the Trinity team has reached like, you know, Yankee status or, or maybe my friend of the show, Jared Brown, would like to know uh, Dallas Cowboys status when they were really good. But you guys have reached a status where you've won so much. So therefore, people don't really like you. Like they're going to fire up. They're going to always give you their best game. So when you guys get tested and maybe you drop one to Sask or you drop one to Alberta, uh, how do you guys stay connected on that? You can still win Canada West or you can still win a national championship versus being like, oh, maybe this isn't our year. Yeah, I think with those. Hmm, it's a great question. I think what gets clear in those weekends is that are awesome. And Sask was an amazing example of that. Was we're not good enough. 
like, yeah, if you talk about if you want to, outsiders want to call this Yankee status, the reality is, is this team, uh, whatever day we're at, got beat because we weren't good enough. And the, the success that we've had in the past has zero impact on what we're doing with this team right now. And we understand that there is an awesome time um, throughout the years and awesome awesome moments our school does and our program does to celebrate the, the history and tradition success that our program has had. But at the end of the day, the first, the guys on the floor and this current staff, we haven't accomplished anything. And I think that's the mindset this year on that year-to-year, game-to-game, day-to-day basis is we lost because we weren't good enough and it just got and it just got outlined um, and got kind of bosh like got shined on it. Um, so the reality is we got to get back to the office. We got to get back to the gym because we got to get better. The cool part about the situations this year is that we had more time. And I think if you lose in the regular season, if you that, that will be why you lose in March. And if you don't upgrade it, if you don't fix it, well, then that's on you. So I think that's what it does for us is it just really shows us that we're not good enough today. And that's the best part is it's today. We have more opportunities and we have more time to train. We have more, I guess, the rest of the season to get better. So I think I think that might be a simple way of thinking about it. But the reality is all that extra stuff you talked about was just noise. And it doesn't actually impact this year's team and the seventh guys on the roster and the situation we're in. Is This team is different. Every team is separate of the program. I think uh, once that team is is done, then all of a sudden they yeah, I, I hope that makes sense. It's just like the reality is if we lose is because we're not good enough. But with the success in the history and tradition of the program doesn't really matter because of where we're at in our season right now. When we lose to Sask this year, when we lost to Alberta, it just showed us that we have a lot of areas that we've got to improve. And what was the mood after Canada West? Because uh, it's not unusual for a team not to win Canada West. Like, obviously, you have to medal to qualify for nationals and win nationals. Like, I, I could go down the list. I think even one of your teams did that, right? So, it, just because you didn't win your conference doesn't mean you can't win a national championship, but it doesn't mean you have to do some work or you have to refocus, right? So, was that something you brought in the message, being like, guys, I've been here before? Or was it something because it's a brand new team, like you had to have a different message and a different focus to go into nationals with? Yeah, that's a good point. I think what was unique about this team is just how much uh, how much better we had to get throughout the year. And when we played Alberta, we, in the regular season, they took to us pretty good. And then I think the goal going into that Canada's final was win or lose. We, need to, we needed to know that we could beat them. And with how close that game was and how honestly poorly we thought we played in a lot of areas that we could control, um, we, we felt like we could beat them, especially if we upgraded a little bit of our service seat that we broke way too much. Like we got east. Um, we got ace, I think it was 12, 14 times, four sets. That, that was a lot. And then we, where our middle spiking was in the good enough spot. And then, um, and then our serve quality was rough too. Like we targeted the barrel way too much. So I think, I think what the, that match showed us is, and that's also the strength of Canada West is if you don't play well on any given net, you will lose. And I think that's what's great about our conference is it, it allows our team to play in so many meaningful matches all year long. And just to say, stay slow dialed and stay and just not get complacent. Now, some stuff I talked about with the interview after the, after the final there's in our program, we believe complacency is the opposite of success. And the moment you get complacent, the moment you feel like you made it, which is probably incredibly common to think for some of our players based on the success of guys that played for them, you know, seven national championships in a row doesn't mean anything for this next year's team. And I think that's stuff that we try to make pretty clear for our team. Congratulations. Maybe that's why you came here because you might have the opportunity to do that. But the reality is we have so much more work to get there. And I think the Canada West was basically the goal of that one was to know that we could, we could beat Alberta. Although I didn't, 
although we didn't in the Canvas final, I felt like we were close enough that if we upgraded a couple areas, a couple areas, we could have done that. So, um, and we know that's that's how things go with with Canada West is with the strength of the schedule. It's often that a Canada West team can win and then maybe not even win at, at nationals, and that's happened with us. Happened me my senior year, twenty eighteen. It's happened other years as well, and that just goes that just speaks to the strength of our schedule. How did, as the coaches or the leaders on the team also deal with like, uh, as coaches, I think we like to get attracted to technical tactical, but you guys had to deal with a lot of emotional. And what I mean by that is I think Alberta sold out Savile and then your semifinal at nationals, you're playing a Mac team and it's Dave Preston's last year and it's an absolute zoo there. So uh, how do you deal with that type of distraction or noise? Like, let alone what they're going to do technically, tactically, like uh, against us to score points. You're also dealing with a really loud, crazy environment too. Yeah, no, that, that's great. And what, what's been awesome with our program in the last number of years, we've had an amazing opportunity to play against so many awesome home environments. We've done it to McMaster a couple of times. The 2019 had the Canvas final in Brandon and they had the National Sending in Laval. So I think what we talked about a lot this year is when it's so loud in those environments, we just got to find different ways to connect. And often what we do and when we connect is, and this is what Jesse also has brought to the team that he's been, he's been amazing. One of his, Jesse's kind of core, mantras of, is during the matches when he doesn't know what to say he asks a question or he gives a compliment to his teammate like he, he'll do that in between every point whether it's a quick compliment or a quick question and it could be something like very minor it could be something a bit bigger that maybe we got to try and quickly unpack in a timeout and that's what he likes to do in a in a match but when it's so loud where you can't even hear your teammates in between points we, we try to figure out is how can we connect at a higher level without using our words and and one thing we talked, we did this, uh, we talked about this here was touch your teammates, look them in the eye, give them a smile. And that's what we tried to do in the two points. And you can't hear them. So just put your hand, give them a high five, look them in the eye, and just give them a smile. And that's how we connect. And that's what we told our guys. And I felt like they did an amazing job of just staying so focused on the job and not letting, not getting distracted with, honestly, all the other stuff that is so easy to get distracted, with, especially in such a unique environment and intense environment like that. So, uh, in those moments, it's just about how you can handle the moment, right? We're just as good at volleyball as the other team. We just got to make sure that we can um, make it about volleyball and not about the other stuff and the noise and the pressure and the home team and all that stuff. We burn the shifts, right? So we know that it's just us. There's no turning back. It's only 17 of us. And then when we burn the shifts, we just got to connect. We said that connect first, volleyball second. Connect like crazy. Touch your teammates, look in the eye, give them a smile. And we would said, can we do that for 25 hours? We know our volleyball is good so just make sure that we can take care of the volleyball or the other stuff in between points. And one thing that was unique about nationals for you guys, because coming out of that Canada West, uh, I love the schedule in terms of playing back to backs because it's a real cat and mouse game about who's going to adjust on the game plan where uh, nationals is, is almost the opposite where you play three games in three days, you get one day to prepare. Uh, and you guys ha had a unique situation where you played two RCQ and an OUA team. So you had no advanced, uh, you've never been across the net from these guys. So what did you guys do either as leaders or the coaching staff to try to get back to your routine and your game day situation? Also knowing that it was completely different and now it's a one game winner takes. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And that's the hard part of the national tournament, especially where we didn't see one Canada opponent. So I thought that was, uh, and it very well could have been too. Like if we would have, if Saskatchewan would have beat Mac and then Alberta would have been Sherbrooke, we would have been, you know, teams we were very comfortable with. So um, I think at the national tournament, and especially if you're in the top four, what we what we tried to make clear to our guys is if you're in the top four in the country, that means you're playing at a level that's high enough to win. Of those four teams, all teams are good enough to win. It's just a matter of who does. So for that reason, we just got to play to our strengths. Like we talked about, our serving, 
our serving being a big one. We don't need to know who's passing on that side or what rotation we want to target. We want to hit our best service. And one of the things we talked about a lot with our service is at the end of the year, our best service is better than their best pass. And we just wanted to give our guys the freedom to just consistently go and hit their best serve. And that went with other phases too. If you're playing in those games at the end of the year, we don't have a lot of time to craft. We don't have a lot of data. We don't have a lot of video. It is what it is. So for that reason, instead of getting distracted and making stuff up for the lack of data and video we have, we just tried to really double down on our strengths. And then for the little bit of video and data we have, it's just one, two, three key little points. And then the biggest thing is how can we adapt in the game? I think that's the biggest um, that's the biggest challenge for coaches in the national tournament is when you don't see a team. Whenever you watch a team on video, whenever you see them in person, it's always something different. Oh, speed's a little bit quicker, a guy's a little bit higher, a guy's a bit more internal, whatever it may be. There's always something a little different. I think trying to quickly identify that and just problem solve. Collaborate and problem solve. And I think that's what our seniors did an amazing job this year. It's quickly in that timeout. Like Montreal is a perfect example. We watched a bunch of tape on Montreal. And one of their men, I forget what guy was, he did this traditional flow, traditional flow, traditional flow all year long from what we saw. And then he's out and over hitting this flip to spin hybrid and he's catching other guys high. So something like that. And all of a sudden it's all right, we just got to step back like that. So I think those first timeouts for, for those national quarters and those teams where you don't play each other almost seem just like an information gathering section where it's just like, all right, what do you see? How, how can we upgrade? And then what, what do we got to go from there? And it's just trying to problem solve, but at the same time, not get too caught in the weeds and just try and think of a couple of upgrades while just keeping the global team. Let's just play to our strengths. Now, uh, one conversation you and I have had in the past, just about some of those in-game adjustments become a, a little bit easier when you've already installed it. So I'm, I'm curious as a coaching staff, was that something you talked about earlier in the year being like, okay, this is our base defense. We're also going to want to be able to do this. And we also need this. Like, were you guys able to maybe front load a little bit of this? So when you did need to pull the shoot in a timeout, it wasn't like panic mode for the guys. We were just kind of like, Hey, instead of doing base, we're going to play whatever word you call it. We're going to play blue defense and our six back guy is going to shift here. Like were you able to draw on some of that stuff where the guys were comfortable and maybe used to the situation, even though the guys across the net were completely different. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Is uh, you got to be able to have those adjustments ready and teed up. And the biggest thing is you got to make sure that it's pretty system understood, systemized, and that it's trained before. Because the moment you try to ask your athletes to do something the first time in a game, well, then you're just chasing the trail, and then that's over coaching. And then poor coaching too, because there's something that you could have used in the game that you haven't trained yet. And the reality is sometimes that's the case in. Uh, maybe preseason or early in the first semester where you only have so little training hours and you don't have this whole year to actually build up your build up everything you want to do. So I think sometimes that's the case where it's like, hey, we know this is it. We're just going to try and just play to our strengths in the, in the early season because we haven't trained the adjustment yet. And I think, uh, yeah, that, that's the case. And sometimes that happens. And it could be something just as simple as like, hey, middle blockers, we're going to kick out this guy or, hey, you know, position one, we're going to play high for some of this guy. It's nothing usually major. It's just kind of the, the, the next layer of the system. It's not something brand new. We just try to think of things in layers. So all of a sudden, like you said, an example would be like, hey, in highball, we're going to play the skip six, step up back, five, step to the high side, one step the pot, whatever it may be. Like, as long as it's something that we train, I think the athletes will have the, the comfort to know that they can execute it. And this has been so cool just to hear about uh, your progression as a coach in the national championship year. But uh, just listening to you speak in this interview, I was curious if you would share uh, some of your training methods. So you've mentioned uh, – 
you know, we got to play volleyball. You want kids to touch the ball a lot. So I'm curious whether you're coaching a Trinity, a, a provincial team, a youth club team, what are some things that go on in your gym? Like, what are you big into in terms of either like motor learning or you like separating by positions or you like having a, a lot of coaches to serve balls? Like, what are some things that uh, if you could advise, give advice to other coaches about like, this is how we like to train and this is why, like, what are some things that happen in the Trinity gym? Whether it's, like I said, every drill is game-like or you like to warm up with something silly or you like to do position specific. Like when you look back at some of the things you believe in as a coach, what can you share with us? Yeah, a great question. I think a couple of things that you can never do too much of is just having passers pass and setters set. Like a setter can never set too many balls, and a libero especially can never pass like too many. Like they can always just get as many passing and setting reps as possible. So I think that's some stuff we try to do is at the start of the practice, just make sure that there's a lot of serve pass going on, just because that's how every run starts is just serve pass. And then, and then, and then usually, especially I mean, a lot of club coaches and younger. Each coaches probably don't have this luxury. Often we get two courts to train, which is great. So we can be really specific with some some of some stuff we're trying to upgrade and, and implement just in two court walk. So one coach will take one court, the other take the other court will take one court. And um yeah, so I think uh setters can never set too many, passers can never pass too many. I think another thing we've been doing a lot lately is just middle block reads is great. So when the when the setter's setting, just have a middle there. Just read block every time. They rotate through minutes. Read go, go next guy in. Read go next guy in. So I think a lot of those, a lot of those game like actions, you can find ways to just get a lot of reps through them in a pretty quick, pretty quick, uh, pretty quick, I guess, early part of training environment. And then, um, and then I think, yeah, like you said, we get better at volleyball by playing volleyball. And I think one thing is we don't do a lot of blocked training. I think a little bit when we're really trying to work on something or, um, you know, we're trying to be like pretty. I guess deliberate with what the what the upgrade is, um, but if that's the case, and I think there needs to be a lot of teaching and a lot of um, a lot of video analysis and a lot of conversations. Like I think just doing reps, 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 just to get better and not actually having to focus or an upgrade or, um, you know, I guess a collaboration with the coach to what the what the upgrade is because is maybe hurting us too much. Like I think there could be a really good evaluation and you can really analyze a lot of I guess less amount of reps. Um, when you're really trying to like upgrade something and work on something. So I think that can be a lot for the case of just like, oh, inside hitter tempo, maybe we'll get gap tempo. It's just like, hey, let's go hit 10. And then we got the video delay. Let's just go watch them. Just to quickly get the recap. So I think stuff like that is, is really helpful. It's just understanding, are you just going to get in touch to feel comfortable? And that's probably depending on the time of the year. Like at the end of the year, man, I just served a million balls at Jesse and Brody and Kyvin just because they wanted to be comfortable with the touch. It wasn't necessarily a lot of upgrades we were doing is, we didn't want to maximize their giant their time in the in the gym because we're in the playoff push. They're already exhausted. So that would be very different from September, where we want to be really dialed in on our skills and really deliberate with what our upgrades are. So then we can serve a bunch and then we'll go watch it and then talk through it. Serve a bunch, go we'll watch it, talk through it. So understanding the time of year and what 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 are you trying to have as a priority in training is really huge. But then, like you said, we get better at volleyball, but volleyball. We want to make sure we do a lot of six on six. That's that's um, that could be very random too. And you can also work on something with that as well. Like we have a drill that's called um, it's called walk with pride, and every 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 ball we do is scripted. So the first one is serve left side, then it's a high ball right side, then it's a free ball that is middle pipe, then it's a serve that's open. So it's like we're trying to work on a little bit of everything there through the method of playing six on six. Still, so um, yeah, I hope, hope that gives some advice. 
Definitely. And I know some coaches are maybe saying, well, I, I just don't have the budget of what a youth sports program has, but tape delay seems like it's available. Uh, you can get it on your phone. You can get it on an iPad. Like you guys aren't rolling out like a TV, right? Like what are you guys using for tape delay and how many like stations do you usually have? Yeah. So I think even like that, an app, I think the app we use, it's called, I think it's called bust the move. I think it's like five or six bucks. And, and then whether or not you can have maybe a parent hold it in club volleyball or you know, even a tripod, you could probably get for 20, 30 bucks. And then usually goes back every like the last two, three minutes. So you can do two, three minutes of work and then just go and watch it. So I think there's a lot of, because of technology, there's a lot of unique areas that we can, we can upgrade. But then nowadays too, I think video is just such an amazing tool for learning. And a lot of kids and parents are just watching games as a whole. So I think that type of stuff can be really beneficial as well. Nice. A lot of learning can be done through video. And just a, another tip looking for coaches where maybe a pessimist might say, well, you were a setter, so you don't, you never received, you don't know what that's like. You've never played middle blocker. So uh, how as a coach, have you maybe educated your positions where maybe as a setter, sure, you never blocked middle, but you knew how to like mess with the middle or what really good middles did to you. So maybe you learned through like that ripple effect or, or how as a coach, have you kind of looked for situations that you didn't get to as a player that you can now instruct other players to do? Yeah, I think. Well, I think the one thing is we just got to make sure as coaches that we're always learning. And so I'm feeling that, especially now. Yeah, like I said, middle read blocking. Yeah. I mean, actually, I did play middle one tournament, um, which was fun. I know that a couple of our community guys will laugh at that. But um, I like to tell people I'm a good middle read blocker, but I don't think that's the case. Um, but like passing for sure. Like, I never passed a meaningful ball in my life. Like, there was never a meaningful match I played in that I passed a volleyball. But I think the biggest thing we could do is learn from the greats. Like asking a bunch of questions, go on podcasts like this to try and just learn, you know, build up our build up our bucket of knowledge. And then the best thing we could do is to ask questions to our athletes. Like I learned so much about passing from Brody and Jesse this year. Just those guys and Matias, those guys passed in the VNL last year. Right? Like they know so much about passing. They passed some of the best serves in the world, and they've also passed a lot of serves for our context in esports. So I think the biggest thing we could do is try to learn from our athletes. Like. The more questions I ask our athletes, I feel like the more and more I know too. So I think as coaches, we could be really, really, uh, I guess, open to learning learning from our athletes. But at the same time, we got to make sure that we're knowledgeable as well. It's not just telling what you know. Like, I think we got to be pretty specific with the type of question we're at, asking for the type of serve that we're passing. So I think as a coach, especially when you coach great players too, like you got to make sure that you're dialed with the questions and that you were prepared. And that's some stuff that I noticed this year too. Corey Schoen is the perfect example of that. I just ask him the most planned question about read blocking. You know, he's going to light me up because of how much he knows, and I am going to feel like um, that doesn't make sense or I doesn't want to talk about. So I think you got to make sure if you're going to be coaching really good players, that you got to be prepared and you got to be organized. And your ducks really got to be in a row because they're awesome and they want to get better. And if they feel like you can't actually help them, then what are you actually doing? Because all athletes want to do is improve, right? And if you can't actually help them, then what are you what are you doing? So. But one of the ways we can help each other is just by collaborating and just asking questions. Man, this has been so cool. Not only to hear about your journey and just kind of support you and everything you got going on, but uh, for everything that you shared for the coaching community and young players, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and giving all the time that you did. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, and, a, and a guest of this podcast too. So, and I guess like a listener. So uh, thanks for having me too. And then, Thanks for all your 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 coverage um, too. I think it's great all all the stuff that you do, and I'm, I'm appreciative. And I'm thankful that you have me on. Thanks, man. I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, best of luck with everything else you got going on. And uh, we'll be rooting for you, whatever capacity you're in. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Josh.